Welcome to Life in the Cloud, the official podcast of Tuple Technologies. Join us each week to hear from experts in cloud migration and IT management as we talk about the latest technologies and trends in cloud and other exciting new developments in tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Life in the Cloud. I'm your host, Chris Reddy, and today I'm joined by Ian Uriarte. Ian is the founder and CEO of a company called Timbergrove. Timbergrove is a really interesting company. We'll, we'll get into it in a lot more detail. But first, I want to start out by learning more about Ian. So, Ian, thanks for being here. First question I want to ask you is, tell us about yourself. Tell us about your background and how and why you started Timbergrove. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate the invitation. I'm excited to be talking with you here and with the followers as well. Originally from Honduras, I've been in the United States close to 30 years now. I came here to school, college, you know, finished college. Basically, I'm, I'm a former electrical engineer who became a software engineer, and then I became an entrepreneur. So that's kind of my background. You know, spent uh, 15 years of my career in, in corporate, corporate world working for, you know, companies in the oil, gas, and industry. Uh, mostly initially, and then I went to work for consultancy in IBM and Global Business Services, and then I started my own company. Very cool. That's perfect segue right into starting your own company. Can you tell us about the company Timbergrove? What's the story behind founding it? You know, it started actually during a recession. I always wanted to... I, I had several companies in between, you know... Actually, since I was 13 years old, I always wanted to do different entrepreneurial things. And some of them were in social entrepreneurship, you know, so more in the nonprofit sector. And then a couple of uh, startups that I did, mostly associated with consulting and uh, services. And then in, in 2009, after the recession hit the uh, you know, United States, you know, economic recession in 2008, 2009 is when it hit actually Houston. And I, it was a difficult market. I decided to, instead of pursuing looking for jobs, I decided it's time to take this bull by the horns and <laughs> start my own company. And actually, it was a great time to start a company because companies were unfortunately laying off people, but they were hiring contractors and hiring companies, you know, consulting companies to help them solve problems without a long-term commitment. So it was great. 2009, that's when we started the company. And why? The reason was because I actually love solve problems. And I thought create a company that actually will solve problems for customers and provide value in a very immediate sense to our customers rather than taking forever, right? Most consultancies, especially large companies, do provide value, but it takes a while because it's a very structured approach. It's very, uh, you know, it's usually for very large projects. And we thought we could go after very punctual problems that we could resolve with a small team in a very short amount of time. Tell me more about what the company actually does, Timber Group. I'd imagine engineering services, software engineering services, and so on. But, you know, what sort of verticals do you guys focus on? What kind of projects do you guys do? You know, we specialize mostly in four industries transportation, logistics, manufacturing, and energy. Those are kind of our core competencies because that's kind of the senior team has the most expertise with those areas. And so we speak the language of our customers in those industries. We understand the type of problems they have because we've been in their, in their shoes most of the time. And we kind of know where, you know where the hidden problems come around the corner you know, with the complexities associated with such type of uh, customers. Those industries you know, have... Also, you know, an, a, a history of using technology to solve problems because they have very complex processes. Their value chain is very extensive. It gets complex very quickly. And technology tends to be, you know, across the board on these companies. And sometimes it's difficult to do the integration, data management, the ability to have 
uh, usable applications that are engaging for end users, you know, and so we thought that would be a, a great place to go after. And, and so far, it's been great for us. So for many industries, we specialize in technology solutions, but we really don't go, usually our customers are not CIOs, are usually operations directors, you know, CEOs, or, you know, uh, plan managers, people who have uh, physical assets that require intense maintenance, right? And they, they want to minimize the downtime so that they can keep production up. And so that's kind of our, our effort. So whether we do custom product development for companies like that, or, or, you know, even smaller companies that go after industries we listed that require some intense use of physical assets, or whether we do systems integrations across different uh, platforms, we, keep, we try to stay with those type of uh, industries. That definitely makes sense. I could see the, uh, at least your career trajectory going from, I imagine in your time as an engineer, you probably worked on these kinds of plants or in these kinds of facilities and so on. And then I see the transition going from that to consulting for those folks. I want to ask Ian, do you have, I imagine in your time, both as an engineer and as the founder CEO of this company, surely you, you must have some really interesting stories about systems implementations and integrations about, I'll use the cliche term of the tech modernization for these industries, transportation, energy, manufacturing, logistics, and so on. Any cool stories you can share or maybe any cutting edge technologies you can? Yeah, absolutely. We've done 12 years in business. We've seen all sorts of things. I mean, many stories we had. Uh, and again, we go after these industries because that's what we know. But sometimes customers from other industries like healthcare have come to us, right? Multiple times in healthcare, they've come to us. We don't maintain a, a staff that has a lot of expertise in healthcare. So that's what we don't purposely go after. But we have solved some complex problems in healthcare as well. So we started applying IoT very early on because of my background, actually, because I'm as a double E, as electrical engineer, right? The mnemonic of double E. I did a lot of projects in telematics, you know, a lot of basically controlling robots remotely and using a lot of information coming from those robots to make decisions. And this is what's talking about mid-90s. And so we did very interesting projects in oil and gas that were, you know, required data going through satellite connections. You know, we didn't have the luxury of broadband in those days. And so we had to be pretty smart about what data was sent via live data and what data has to be shipped via a CD back in the days, right? So one of the first implementations of IoT we did in 2014, actually, and uh, which, as you know, as probably familiar with this, is uh, it was kind of early on, right, in terms of the mnemonic IoT being used those days. We did it for a former Hall of Fame pitcher, and we designed an application that uh, used IoT technologies and analytics to help train MLB pitchers. So it was a pretty cool, uh, it was a combination of a mobile app and a web application the back end with uh, dashboard analytics that allows to track the, the baseball, right? And track basically the angle of incision, the speed, and where, you know, in the quadrant of the strike zone, the ball will come. So that was a very interesting, uh, you know, first early adoption of IoT. We used a lot of IBM Watson IoT technologies to track, you know, the ball and get that data from the field to the cloud and then from the cloud to be use all sorts of analytics to be able to identify better performance, you know, for the pictures. So that was a very early use of, of IoT and machine learning early on. Very cool. Real quick, I want to ask, does that have anything to do with the increase of analytics used in sports? Maybe you could say pioneered by uh, the Moneyball scenario with the Oakland A's. <laughs> is, that, uh, is there any relation there? You know, I think, so this former MLB Hall of Famer, I say former because... 
I think, well, he's actually a Hall of Famer. He had this, actually, this dream for a very long time. And he tried to implement this in the early 90s or mid 90s. And, you know, technology was very, very lagging. So he had the right idea, obviously, because, you know, he did himself as a pitcher, you know, for decades. And so he realized that technology was too behind. So in 2013, we had started conversations and we started working on an early prototype for both the hardware and the software. And I ended up actually within a few months giving him a really good run in terms of the, the software and in terms of the prototype for the hardware. And we collaborated with a, a third-party company for the hardware. But I think obviously, you know, his, his mindset was he knew already that uh, about all these analytics and how things were, were, were working in terms of uh, determining. He, he was pretty leading edge, I would say, for 2013 when we had the conversation. And the fact that he was trying to do this in the 90s told me that he understood the importance of statistic analysis and, you know, being able to determine things a little more empirical than the way that it used to be in the, in the old days. May I ask, how did you get in touch with this Hall of Fame pitcher? It's uh, one of those things is network. You know, I think that uh, over the years, I, I have a pretty broad network, professional and personal network. And it's not something that I kind of do. Honestly, I do. I was never kind of like a, a person who liked to just go to networking events or for the purpose of networking. I just like people in general. You know, one of those guys that a little extrovert and so connect with people of all backgrounds. A former boss of mine started working for the company that this former MLB pitcher had the idea for. And so when they started talking about it, they wanted to implement it. And, you know, we just were having coffee. The guy lived in Colorado. He came back into Houston for a few days. We we went for coffee. He told me he was doing it. I said, man, I think I can help you. And uh, I remember flying to Dallas to the initial meeting and, and showing them what we could do. And, and they were blown away. And so we said, because I prepared a prototype, actually, early prototype before I even went there. <laughs> and they liked what they saw. So That's a really, really cool story, Ian. Thanks for sharing that one. <laughs> do you have any other, any other stories you can share? Maybe about like business side. I, I'd imagine there's use cases where you've saved millions of dollars of a oil company or something like that? Yeah, so there's a couple. So I'll tell you, there's a customer, actually, the Huffington Post created an article for about this. You know, they created a, an article about something else, but they cited this use case that we built. So there's a company, uh, it's a large oil field services company here in Houston called Petrolink. And they had a, they were building over the years, they were trying to build a big data analytics engine that allowed them to do all sorts of analytics, you know, for preventing big issues related with, you know, with drilling, right? So when you're drilling, there's a lot of dangers that are happening. And so, you know, my early career as an engineer, I was working for Baker Hughes and my job was what is called, I was a field engineer, it's an MWD, a measure while drilling engineer. And that job is very hands-on on a drilling rig for <laughs> weeks at a time. You learn a lot about drilling, right? You learn about the process and the people and obviously the technologies involved with that. And uh, it was a very challenging environment, but it was very good for me in terms of experience. And I think when I connected with the folks at, 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 um, at Petrolink, uh, obviously, not only my background and expertise and the people that I know in that field, they were trying to innovate by taking the, creating this big, uh, big, you know, high volume, you know, big data engine. And they were trying to use a lot of open source technologies, but they were doing this for a couple of years with their teams. They have worldwide teams, obviously, you know, it's a, it's a large oil field services company, uh, and they were working with, you know, a global brands, you know. Um, the main issue that we're having is that sometimes when you get somebody who's just specialized in something, they go with their blinds in. So they're looking at the products just from the product perspective, right? And sometimes it takes somebody that is not 
working on the problem to look at it in a more broad fashion, you know? So that's what we did. And so what we did with them was um, we helped them build an engine, modifying open source, open source engine. I think we used Spark initially for it. We were able to complete the project in four months, you know, with a, a small team of, I think, four, four developers and a project manager. I think it was a very short period of time we were able to complete it. So what they're doing with this is they're monitoring close to 200 wells worldwide. The number of transactions that they're handling right now is, at this point is close to 10 million records per minute. It's a very, very high volume, high, uh, you know, uh, engine to process data across the board. What we did with this is we are saving them millions of dollars on downtime. So the way you calculate downtime in a drilling rig is based on any event that occurs in, in a drilling rig. A semi-submersible rig usually costs about a million dollars, almost a million dollars a day on the rental, right? It's a lot of costs associated with the drilling rig floating in the middle of the ocean, plus all the logistics that come in there, the personnel. And so when you have to stop drilling because there is an issue, an event, like, for example, like a kick, determining an early determination on an event like that, like a click, can save you easily $20, $30, 40000000 million in one simple incident. And so we were able to do is compare historical data with real-time data coming in on windows that are sliding. And so but we're doing that with a lot of parameters at the same time. And so we needed an engine that was extremely fast. So a, a lot of a memory, you know, data, databases, fast data processing with Spark, you know, engines. I think we were using at the time Cassandra, which wasn't, you know, this is... We did this in 2016, I believe, is when we finished developing that product. A lot of technologies that were integrated into this to be able to save, you know, I'm talking about 20 to $30 million a year of savings for any of these uh, oil gas companies. So it's like a, if I understand it correctly, it's predicting the failures. It's predicting that's, failures, That's correct. what the analytics was for. And then, of course, knowing when or at least being able to predict when and what type of failure is going to happen, the oil company can proactively replace that part or something like that and so on. What we're trying to do is predict when an event is going to occur so you can take action before it happens, right? So the ability to, for example, instead of continuing drilling, right, and continue to keep going down in the borehole. So what you're trying to avoid is most of the time is what is called a trip back. So it's basically remove the pipe. When you're 30,000 feet of pipe down in the hole, it takes days pull out of the hole and go back into it. It's called, you know, back in the pull out of the hole and pull in the hole. Those, or tripping, that's, what, that's usually the term that's used in the drilling rig. That trip, it costs you millions, right? And if you can avoid that, because again, talking about millions per day, you know, on, on operations and personnel that is idle, we're just waiting for the pipe to come out of the hole and be able to come back and change the bit or, you know, do some changes on the tools that go behind the bit. So that, that process is, is a multi-million dollars. And so if you can avoid that by detecting early, you can change the things like the density of viscosity to the liquid that you're putting in the hole, which is called mud, the mud density, or by circulating longer or by changing the angle of incision you're going to have and, and, or the azimuth on the drill bit and things of that nature. In this project, what sort of databases and other technologies and softwares did you guys implement for your analytics platform? They were using Cassandra for the database. So we adopted Cassandra into that. We took Spark and made several modifications to the Spark engine. Uh, and we actually created a product that we, our engine as well. And then on top of that, we did the sliding window component, which they call the MBE. The, and I can't stand right now, I can't remember the, what MBE stands for them, but it's, it's an, an event monitoring, basically what we created. A lot of NQTT, 
you know, because it's real-time data coming into the system. And then I think we use Redis for the in-memory database as well. So in order to speed up, because, you know, we actually ended up with a very tiny engine. It was so small that you could have this in something. It was running, I believe, in a server with 32 gigs of RAM, a very single server on the cloud, a very simple. We were able to compress the engine to something tiny. And it's right now, as I said, it's handling about 10 million transactions per minute. It's, it's a lot of data coming in. And when was this? This was some years ago or very recently? No, no, this was a, and we finished this product. Uh, we did it in about four or five months, I think at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017. Very cool. Even in that, I, there's so much I learned about, I guess, oil companies and oil rigs right there. That's interesting. The kinds of problems that they have to deal with. I want to ask again, Ian, do you have any other cool stories in other industries, maybe with transportation or logistics or manufacturing? So one of the projects that we're currently working on is we're working for biggest competitor of, uh, of UPS and FedEx in Canada. And uh, we're working through a, a company that's, you know, as a partner of ours. And we've been building a product that is a, it's a dynamic routing system for basically tracking all the pallets and all the shipments that are uh, commercial shipments, right? It's, it's not as simple as what you see in Amazon when you go in, in the complexity, even on that, on something on the consumer side, tracking your shipment. But when you're sending hundreds of pallets, right? And let's say thousands of pallets from between somebody like Walmart and, you know, somebody like Colt, you know, making faucets, you know, sending it, you know, to the distributors and then from the distributors to our consumers. Being able to track all the packages, all the pallets, all the different shipments, it's quite, quite a lot of complexity. So we've been basically building a system that allows us to do dynamic routing so that we can determine not only tracking of the system, but also determining what is the best route for a particular package, right? So there's a lot of, uh, obviously, a lot of analytics behind that, a lot of uh, prediction and the ability also to, you know, obviously track, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of packages daily that go across between the United States and Canada. You're trying to come up with a product or a platform that can determine the best route for a package to travel from to get from point A to point B? Yeah. So what it allows us to do is kind of track not only the package, but also which is the best carrier to pick up the package. So because sometimes it goes to third parties, right? You know, most of the time, especially in the US, it goes to third parties, whether independent contractors or it goes to FedEx or UPS. So sometimes FedEx and UPS have to pick up those packages, but they have to keep the same, you know, labels and the same tracking system that we are using. So even when it goes, it's picked up by UPS, you know, we need to know that it's in a UPS truck and which UPS truck and, and which distribution facility, which point in the border with Canada needs to go to. And so be able to, uh, you know, determine these are the resources available. These are the packages today. This is how we need to create the route for this particular, you know, shipments between this company and the destination in Canada. Very cool. I, I'd imagine there's, there's tons of, variables that need to get sorted out in that they're all changing in real time and of course there's prices of various things that are probably changing in real time as well that need to get factored in i can only begin to imagine how complex that must be how do you solve a problem like that what's the first thing that goes through your mind when a client asks you to to work on this problem you know i think part of it is one, understanding the industries, right, that we work in is very key. This is why we are very peculiar about not taking a lot of projects in other industries. Like, we don't do a lot of marketing projects, you know, like, you know, we had some big companies approach us on, on the marketing side, and we're very cautious about saying yes to that type of project because it's not where we have our expertise. So complexity of process, business process management, kind of, you know, technologists, is, you know, we did a lot of those projects back in the day. 
in um, understanding how to break a process, who are the roles involved into it. It starts as painting a picture as simple as a swim, as a swim lane. Okay, who are the actors? Where are the steps the process has? What are these decisions can be made by humans? Which decisions can be automated? How many of these data points are handled by, you know, manual processes like email or spreadsheets? We had a customer that had no, they will take patients. They had 350 facilities across the United States and they were taking about, I'm trying to remember the number, but I think they were taking close to 60,000 patients a year. And they were tracking a lot of those patients by actual recording in, in a notebook. And so sometimes one of the issues that we discovered as we were understanding their problem was that sometimes the cleaning crews will come at night and if the notebook had fell on the floor, it was trash. And so it will go in the trash and there's a lot of lost data there, right? And so, so you know, we, we'll, we'll learn lessons not only through our mistakes, but also sometimes through, you know, what our customers' mistakes have made. And, and it costs them a lot of money, but, you know, we come in and trying to understand the root of the problem. I think part of it is what we do is we listen very carefully as a company is one of our cultural values is like when we go into a, even if we call it a sales call, it is not to pitch. It is to listen and understand and ask questions, you know, understand where the problem really is. Because sometimes, and I think this is what I learned working at a large company like IBM is that sometimes you don't find what the right problem is and you go after and throw a lot of resources. And, I, you know, it's not that IBM does it. Everybody does this. You know, in IBM, I saw it and it was Pressure sometimes by the customer wanting to achieve certain KPIs that were not probably the right, we were not ready to address. And so a lot of, it, you know, you spend a lot of time getting going and you realize that you get going very fast, but you're going nowhere. <laughs> it's the old adagio of uh, measure twice, cut once, right? So we kind of a little, a little slow in that process initially, but we ask a lot of questions and our customers, the feedback from our customers is that sometimes we come in and they have not thought about these things. I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, coming with a, a systems thinking mentality rather than a, you know, I think if you have a hammer, you're going to find nails, right? That's what you're looking for. And so what we're trying to do is not to come with a hammer, it's come with the mentality of like what the problem is, listen a lot. So that's what we do. Listen a lot, get deep. We try to add value before the customer even pays a cent. And so we, we do a lot of consulting initially before any contracts are signed, to be very honest. And sometimes it's not... <laughs> It's not the best way to do business initially, but in the long term, what we find out is that our customers stay with us for a very long time. I would imagine once you build up such a good relationship, let's say you finish one project with them, they got a dozen projects going on. All executives will. So we'll find another one for you. You mentioned that your firm doesn't do a lot of marketing and, and stuff like that. Is uh, Timbergrove's business and revenue, I would imagine it's mainly off of uh, referrals and the network and recurring client work? So, yeah, but I was referring that we don't do a lot of marketing projects, meaning like we don't take projects in the marketing area, right? So we also haven't done much marketing until recently. You know, we're trying to put the name a little more out there. But, but it's, yeah, so the, the primarily way that we connect through customers have been through either uh, network, you know, personal networks, my, my network and, you know, that, that of the management team. And then also through partnerships, you know, like IBM has been a strong partnership over the years. Their focus has shifted a little bit and where they're going. And so we still have a strong relationship, but it's not what it used to be. And so, you know, we have other partners that have stepped into that, that role to fulfill that, especially, you know, areas that are not uh, IBM's specialty, you know. And so and we're a strong AWS partner as well. So, you know, nowadays everything is done in the cloud. So, you know, we, if you're not strong on that, for us, it's not something that we advertise. We do stuff, cloud, you know, uh, projects, but everything is done in the cloud, right? And so we have 
a lot of people certified in AWS, architects, security, all sorts of things, DevOps as well. Absolutely. Ian, there's another question I want to ask. I figure you're the perfect person to ask this. There's um, you know, a lot of buzz around IoT, Internet of Things, and there's a growing buzz around IIoT, Industrial Internet of Things. What is the difference between them? The difference is reliability. That's the fundamental difference. When you use IoT and, you know, for example, right, you know, the smartwatches, right, you know, it's an IoT project. So it's using, it's sending you data. It's a thing that has data and that sends it into a particular data storage for analytics, right? So it's basically what you're trying to do is monitor, you know, things like, uh, you know, how many steps you're trying to monitor, you know, the BPM, right, on your heart. You're trying to understand uh, other factors, how much activity you did in a day. If this fails for whatever reason, the data is not as accurate. You're not making really as important decisions. But in a when you're in an industrial environment, so let's talk about a little bit, for example, oil and gas. If you're monitoring drill pressure, right, which is the pressure in the borehole that is maintained by that mod that I was talking about, right? That's, that's basically is, it's a chemical. It's water with chemicals that maintain the, the density pretty high so that the wellbore doesn't collapse around the pipe and then you get stuck. So while you're drilling and you're drilling that hole, you're pumping from the bottom of the drill pipe of the string, you're pumping a lot of, uh, a lot of this chemical. So the mud is coming back around the pipe, you know, back to the surface and bringing all the debris generated by the drill bit. And so as you're doing that, that pressure, the pressure of the wellbore is like one of the critical factors that you need to monitor. Because if that pressure for some moment spikes up, I mean, you're about to have a big kick. Talking about hundreds of life on that, you know, accidents that happened in the past, right? Where, you know, you have hundreds of people in a well, especially if you're talking about a rig offshore, semi-submersible or, or a drill ship. And you're talking about millions of dollars as well of losses, right? I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars of losses if something happened. So industrial IoT is, you know, you have to be more reliable. So the data has to be, uh, you have to have a guarantee of delivery of the data. And also, you cannot use hardware or software that has single point of failure and, you know, in those processes. And so reliability is one of the things. Security is the other, obviously, right? You cannot allow, you know, as, you know, the examples of the plants, you know, the power plants and the, and the gas plants that were hacked a few months back, that's a, you know, it can affect greatly, not only economically, but processes. You know, imagine, you know, all the manufacturing plants that will have to shut down because of the failure like that, somebody hacking into the system, right? So reliability and, and security are two very key things. So for example, you know, we cannot come to an, a drilling rig with an, you know, a, a strawberry pie-based system. Raspberry Pi is a toy, right? I mean, it is a really cool toy, right, that you can do a lot with, but it's not very reliable. So instead of you using better computing, you know, with systems that are like PLCs, or you use uh, data acquisition systems that have you know, that the, the boards have been tested for the specific temperature ranges and the, all the harsh environments where they're going to live. There's a lot of also of um, compliance that you have to meet when you're in a plant like that. So, for example, hazardous areas sometimes is, is a key thing. So hazardous areas is basically as, as a classification that you give to a, a particular area of work where there could be, if there's an accident, it could cost lives, right? Oh, you're talking about a losses in the millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. For example, class one, div one is a classification that is given to an area where you cannot have electrical power just flowing in a cable just around, right? You have to have some sort of uh, electronic barriers that minimize the amount of current that goes through it. And if, if the cable is severed, it cuts the power immediately. So it doesn't create a spark as well. 
you know, enclosures that, that prevent from air coming into an area where it has electronics because that air might contain gases, you know, that are explosive. So there is a lot of, uh, you know, the protocols that are used in terms of radio. You cannot just use whatever cell phone you want in that area because those areas may have sensitive electronics equipment that might be sensitive to the signals generated by a cell phone. So you cannot just have a, a SIM card on a regular IoT device laying around close to that process. So all those things come into place. There's a lot more sensitivities, you know, about what you can place in an environment like that than regular IoT. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my take is that IIoT is like IoT, but just, you know, scaled up to a much, a much bigger level to the point where enterprises can rely on it, as opposed to my smartwatch breaking out and, and not telling my, my, my heart rate every now and then. That's right. There's more compliance that they have to meet. And then the reliability is a key factor in security as well. You mentioned the example with the oil drilling operation. What are some other examples of, of IIoT in our lives? So, you know, we have a client that manufacture, they're still in oil and gas, but they manufacture pipe, right? And they do all sorts of other they're a French conglomerate and they do all sorts of uh, manufacturing worldwide. But the use case that we have right now is they have in their giant plant here in East Houston, they have a plant where they manufacture pipe. They have a wastewater plant. You know, and this wastewater plant is uh, it processes the water coming from all the buildings and the processes um, within the manufacturing trucks. You know, if you have that water just laying in the ground, it will contaminate eventually, you know, the water table. And, you know, the water that comes from the ground, particularly in Houston, you know, the water that we get is from underground, you know. And so at some point, th those uh, particular chemicals or even just bodily water that is being used in bathrooms and, you know, and, and sinks that contains some sort of bacteria that you don't want in the regular water stream, you know. And so EPS regulates that as a heavily regulated area and the fines are extremely high when something happens. So these, they have automation systems they kicking and maintain the water. The problem they're having is that this is in a very remote area of their plant and there's nobody there. There's nobody there most of the time. And especially weekends or holidays, if a spill happened because one of the processes fail, they have no way to know. And, you know, there's a huge alarm with a red light that, it, you know, bright and sounds. But, I, you know, I've been in that plant when that happens and you cannot hear that because it's miles, right? This is miles wide. And so what we added is we added a remote monitoring system on top of their control system. And we added sensors to monitor the motors that do the aeration process, you know, those pumps that put air into the water, monitor the pH on the water coming out of the plant, and also monitor the overflow tanks as well to make sure that once the overflow tank starts to getting water, that means that the process is at some point with a certain amount of time, that doesn't stop, that the overflow is going to go into the ground. <laughs> And they're going to have a huge fine. And they happen to have fines in the past because error will occur a Friday in the afternoon and it will keep running through the entire weekend. And maybe Monday is a holiday. And you have three, four days of water spilling into the ground. And that slap on the wrist is, is cost them, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so we created a process that allowed them to send us text messages when something fails or emails or both, you know, and to the key stakeholders. And they have a we create a dashboard that allows them to monitor that as well and, and be able to set up the KPIs and, you know, whatever it is that they want to monitor and be able to be alerted that happens. Because sometimes it's not just for the compliance, sometimes it's maintenance. And one of the blowers, they have this dual system of um, fail safe, you know, with two dual blowers. Even none of them are going in a certain period of time, they get notified so a technician can be sent and do a maintenance or repair on one of the pumps. These are some 
some uh, interesting cases that I think the the average person or like the average layman like myself just doesn't think about. It's the complexity of what happens on the back end that keeps these systems running, like keeps wastewater out of our streets or, you know, keeps the oil, you know, moving to the gas station where we can put it into our cars. It's very interesting. Ian, I, I want to ask, shift towards uh, wrapping up and concluding a little bit. I want to ask about Timbergrove again. What's in the future for the company? What sort of big plans do you guys have? So, you know, we're making some changes. So one of the strategic directions that we're taking is that we love solving problems, but we also realize that it is a very resource-consuming endeavor, right? And although, you know, it, it's interesting because if, if you do a, a small search on, on our competitors, the list that it comes up with is usually services companies. You're talking about Sojeti, you're talking about, uh, you know, Accenture. And those are huge companies. And so we're not really interested in competing with them. I mean, we do. And, and to be quite honest, we have. And we have won some and lost a lot as well, right? But we are continue to do that. So we're, you know, not everybody wants to go to Sojeti or, or to Accenture, or, you know, or to IBM to solve these problems because, you know, usually those are very large projects and most of our customers do not start with a million dollar project, as you probably imagine, right? And so we start solving a small problem and then we, you know, that grows into solving a, a larger problem. So a subset of the problems, you know, and then we get into the whole, the whole enchilada, like if you could say it that way. But what we're trying to do is go into switching our approach to create products that are repeatable and they're SaaS based. So we want to move more into that space. And so we have started already. So we have a couple of products that we have a Moonshot IoT, which is a, an industrial IoT platform and it's ready to use. Most of the platforms that you find around right now are like for developers. We didn't make this for developers. We made this for business people, you know, so people who want to solve a problem. And we created templates for specific industries, transportation, and gas, kind of ones that we have already been working on. And they're very easy to implement. It's very rapid, you know, so it's basically... Time to market is almost negative. Right? You're talking about a month. If it's an extremely large project, you may talk about a couple of months versus what it takes to do an IoT, an industrial IoT project from scratch, you know, using just AWS or what's on IoT or Azure. That would take several developers, several months to actually get something accomplished. So with us, it's very quick. And then the second is a protocol and graphics, which is more in the, in the size of, a, um, you know, it's a kiosk that allows to track visitors and employees and and it has a temperature system that allows to track body temperature. So when people come in, they can check in. And especially in COVID times, you know, it's uh, for facility management to allow track visitors and, you know, the ability to track if employees uh, have been vaccinated or not, or they have had tested, been tested for COVID or, and, you know, hopefully it won't be just for COVID. And we made it open enough that you can track any potential other, other pandemics as well. This has been awesome. This is a very interesting conversation. Any other topics you'd like to discuss? I think I'm more or less out of questions, but anything else that you want to discuss or anything that you wish I asked that I did not? No, Chris, I think this has been great. I mean, I, I feel on, on the spot because I'm not usually talking about myself or my company. It's, it's great. I mean, it's also, I appreciate the opportunity, but I hope our listeners find these stories interesting and they can relate to it. And so, but no, I think that uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and chatting with you. And so hopefully we can do this sometime again in the future, talking about a specific topic. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Very interesting. Final question. Is Timbergrove hiring? And if so, where should people uh, look? Should they go on the website or a, a job platform or something? Yeah, we're actually looking right now for... Uh, we have a couple of openings, more on the size of front-end development. We're looking for senior 
front end developers. You know, so part of what we do, you know, the custom product development, we do a lot of front end. So we do UX, UI, and front end development, mostly a lot of integration in the back end as well and development. But we're growing and we're looking for a senior front end developer that understands obviously UX, but it's more on the development side, you know, platforms like Angular or just the JavaScript front end, you know, platforms like Angular, you know. I think that is something that we're looking for senior developer in that space. Awesome. So if any of the listeners have that expertise or know anyone, reach out to Ian, reach out to Timbergrove. Through the website, I think we have those already in our page. And, uh, or you can just go to the website and, and reach out and you know, send a resume. And we'll be happy to connect and have a chat. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ian. This has been wonderful. Very interesting conversation. Really glad we got the, the chance to do this. This, is, this has been fantastic. I appreciate it, Chris. Great talking with you and hopefully we talk soon again, okay? Definitely. Thanks. We hope you found some value in this episode of Life in the Cloud. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. You can continue the conversation with us on LinkedIn by tagging Chris Reddy, at Chris-Reddy. That's at K-R-I-S-R-E-D-D-Y in a comment or by sending a direct message. We look forward to hearing from you. 